and we have these constructs and these images of God. And, and what Laird is inviting us is to not see Jesus as an object, but rather to realize that we're actually seen with the eyes of Christ. Formation Society of Arizona welcomes you to another season of our podcast, Taste and See. This time we're talking about contemplation into the silent land. Hey, welcome back to the Taste and See podcast, a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. This is season five. Episode two, and I'm Ted Wiesty, one of your hosts, and I am the director of the Spiritual Formation Society. I'm joined by my co-host, Gray. Yeah, Gray Ewing. I am pastor of Ascension Church in the middle of Phoenix and uh, also the co-host of this podcast on the ministry team at the Society. And so it's always great to have a chance to connect with you, Ted, and to talk to all those who are listening in wherever you are. Yeah, it's exciting. This season, we're going to be walking through this book, Into the Silent Land, by Martin Laird. And we share this on the the first podcast, or the first episode, is that we want to be praying for Martin during this season, because he's undergoing some health challenges. And um, as I was interacting with him, he'll, he'll probably show up and be a part of one of our podcasts at some point. Um, but as he recovers and deals with some medical things, he welcomed our prayer. So as, if, if you choose to read as you're going along with this, um, pray for uh, Martin um, as you do. And so uh, today we are joined by um, one of our teammates uh, with the Spiritual Formation Society, John Delise. Thanks for being here. Hey, I'm glad to be here. So we're going to be discussing um, uh, topically, really, what, what's happening in, in chapter one. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. Yeah. So this season, we are drinking coffee as we go. Part of our little uh, shtick here is that we eat or drink something together, and we take the time to do that. Seeing the theme of Scripture that for food, tasting and seeing that God is good, the feast that's prepared for us, uh, both uh physical feast that, that God gives us and also the feast of, of knowing him. Um, and so anyway, this season we're looking at, we're having coffee, right? So we are enjoying uh, today some locally roasted beans from Peugeotto coffee, which is on the East Valley. Uh, it's out in Chandler, I think, is, and maybe they have multiple locations, but it's with an X, if you didn't know, P-E-I-X-O-T-O. Peugeotto, and this blend is called the Dose or the Doce. I don't know if that see how that's pronounced. Dolce. <laughs> Dolce. Yes. That's how we say um, it in Italy. And this is the coffee that we serve on Sundays here at Ascension Church. So uh, we we bring in the specialty beans for this, uh, just to uh, you know bring everyone closer to Jesus. All right. Well, so, let's let's try it, and we'll be I back in a couple of minutes. Probably brewed by now, so I'll go grab it for us, and we'll be right back to continue our discussion. Right on. Thank you for joining us on the Taste and See podcast, a podcast of the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona. Our vision for the Spiritual Formation Society of Arizona is to create space for leaders and learners to grow in deeping intimacy with God. 
check out sfsaz.org for more information and resources and consider joining us at an upcoming event. Now back to the podcast. And we are back from our break and still enjoying, still sipping on some Peugeotto. By the way, I'm 99% confident in that, in pronouncing that right, but I'm not 100%. So, Peugeotto. And you also don't know what it means either. I don't know what it means. It's another language. But, how was it, guys? (laughs) It's tasty. It's it's really rich. Like, it's got a lot of flavor and depth to it. So this is really popular out in the East Valley. It's funny, I'm, we're in Midtown now. I don't know. I think it started out because we were at New Valley Church at some time uh, in our past, and they, that's the coffee they use because it's right near their church, and we just started using it. We've never stopped. So it's good stuff. Brings on the contemplation, you might say, <laughs> to transition us into our discussion of Chapter 1 and and really just the, the necessity of the contemplative life and how it's so tied uh, to just life itself. The, the life we have is, is life in God. And um, I think this may actually be in the introduction that we didn't get a chance to talk about, but it certainly leads into this chapter. For me, it just kind of set the stage is that he, Jesus, you know, talks about the, the one thing necessary, right? The unum necessarium, or however you say that in Latin. There's one thing necessary in that story with Mary and Martha. And, and Mary chose... The, the one thing necessary, which was to sit at Jesus's feet, and it made me wonder if we were asked church leaders today, what's the one thing necessary, right, mm-hmm. for 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 your ministry, or what's the one thing necessary if somebody's going to have a life with God? How would you fill in that blank? What's the really most important thing? And I wonder if our answer sometimes would be what Jesus says: the one thing necessary is to sit at the feet of Jesus, to to listen to Him, to contemplate Him in silence like Mary does um, and I think that is a beautiful way to kind of lead and to talk about just how accessible this life with God really is kind of for all of us so um, yeah maybe John since you, uh, you're here and you've, you've read the chapter and I know this is probably a familiar book to you talk to us a little bit about that idea where, where we have this contemplative life and we're, we're trying to have a life with God but um, one of the things that Laird really talks about is that that life is available to us all the time and is interwoven in everything that we do and almost like we need to just realize it, right? Yeah, yeah, I was, I was impressed rereading Laird uh, how Protestant mm. the sensibility was in the opening chapter and I'd be curious to know his own story. What do you mean his by that? His own journey. What I mean is he was so careful to couch his language in biblical categories. And I kept going back to, uh, you know, one of the great reformers, Calvin, um, who in his uh, book three says that union with Christ is at the center of every aspect of salvation. And the difference between a Laird and a Calvin is whatever experiences Calvin had with the Lord, he kept private, uh, would not move into the subjective sphere where, you know, Laird has a sensitivity to uh, the internal space of contemplation, is not afraid to go there. But uh, he relies, you know, heavily on um, Pauline theology, uh, 
not so much in the early letters, even though he does talk about Galatians too. Uh, we can go back and talk about you know his conversation about baptism, but he really emphasizes in Ephesians and Colossians this being in Christ and Christ being in us. And and what I loved about that was just how in the older Catholic tradition, not just Catholic, but in the older monastic tradition, they would talk about the purgative and illuminative and unitive ways. And um, and some of them would be very linear in the way that they would lay that out. And, and so that the unitive became like a goal. Mm-hmm. And they also... By that you mean just the experience of the unity. With yeah, it, be, it is an experience. Yeah. And it was something that would come towards the end or even beyond in purgatory. It was, it was always ahead where what Calvin did from his own careful study of Paul and Laird's a careful student is no, it's not an acquisition to use Laird's language, but it's it's just the reality. Mm. It's the reality, right? He talks about, you know, like we're all image bearers of God. That is just who we are. And then he, and then you know the process of moving into the likeness of God. Yeah, there is a journey, and there's all kinds of language in the Christian traditions for that. But it was so helpful to me as a pastor realizing that I don't need to move people or change people or push necessarily push people but rather allow them to just realize this gift at the center of their being which is God's immediate presence Mm. I have that layered quote right here I can just read it which is basically what you were saying he says union with God is not something that needs to be acquired but realized which I feel like you could take a week to think about right not something acquired, but realized. It makes me think about it. I can't actually remember if he references this in the chapter, but you know, in the, in the book of Acts, when Paul is speaking in uh, Mars Hill, he's saying, you know, to to Athens, this this city that's. I mean, in the text, it literally says it's sinking under the weight of of idols. Right? There's all these gods, and he says to them who are so f- seemingly far away from God. Right? He says. God's not far from any one of us, right? Actually, he's there. If you want to reach out, then you may find him, right? Because he's, he's not far from any of us. And, and Augustine says some similar things. You know, I was running away from God. I felt like I was getting further and further mm-hmm. away from him. And I was doing all these things and I had this perverse lifestyle. And then w- when I came, returned to him, I realized that he was right behind my back the whole time. All I had to do was turn around mm-hmm. and he was there. It felt like I was going far from him, right? but I actually he was with me the whole time. And it's right. that realization that we cannot, our life is in God. Right. We cannot run away from a life that is life indeed, because it is what our life is. Yeah, I mean, what Laird's talking about is the complete opposite of idolatry. Because even Christians struggle with their God concepts, and we have these constructs and these images of God. And, and what Laird is inviting us is to not see Jesus as an object, but rather to realize that we're actually seen with the eyes of Christ. You know, So it's the complete removal of that objectification of God, right, which comes about through the practice of silence and contemplation. And, you know, the... the the title of this first chapter is Parting the Veil, the Illusion of Separation from God. And I would say the, the tradition I kind of grew up in and was discipled in um, talked a lot about being separated from God. Mm. Um, that, um, I mean, that was like, 
you know, did you get some visuals maybe of that? Maybe, oh, yeah. uh, maybe you were on a one side chasm. of the cliff and God was on the chasm. other side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that part of what he's getting at here is that when we hold on to those kind of images, it can really be a barrier to contemplation because then we're trying to do something or achieve something or acquire something or measure up to something um, rather than being at rest in what is, which is God's presence uh, with us. And so, um, yeah, so what, what do you guys think about that? There may be some ways in which talking about separation from God is, is helpful, but I think in some traditions, some churches, that seems to be emphasized to the point of distraction. The scriptures talk about a distinction without a separation, right? And, and so, and in lots of different categories, right? But what I mean by that is we are to be distinguished from God. We're his creatures, right? We are his creation. There's nothing in us that is God, right? Um, however, that, that distinction does not mean that we are separated from. And in fact, in the gospel, we see the picture of Christ you know, indwelling us, that means, and, and, and also, you know, very problematic language for some people that this idea that our union goes so deep that we become partakers of the divine nature, uh, as Peter says. And so there's still always a distinction, but there's not a separation. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't use the language, but, you know, the classic Orthodox belief in the hypostatic union of Christ, you know, where you, you can't separate the human nature of Christ from the divine nature. We're, we're united to Christ in his humanity. We don't become God, but man, we are right above God, or we are mm-hmm. to the, that, that those things can't be separated. Um, and, 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 and that's where this idea of the illusion, right? The, the illusion of separation uh, really mm-hmm. starts to um, have this sort of cancerous mm-hmm. effect in our, in our walk with God because um, we're unable to really step into what the New Testament and what the gospel invites us into. And so it's ironic that, you know, Laird, a monk, would invite um, our communities, the communities that I serve in, to really reconnect with what Paul and the rest of the New Testament has been inviting us into. Um, But we've, we've overly rationalized, I think, our understanding of her faith and salvation and so on. I think it's, it's fascinating when you look at the New Testament writings. I mean, the Gospels, Jesus talks about abiding and he is, you know, to abide in him as he is abiding in us. And there's this mutuality of indwelling. And, and of course, the Apostle Paul, you know, seems to interchangeably talk about Christ being in us and then us being in Christ. And and the math doesn't work in a, in a sense. And my, my sense is that Paul was writing much more mystically than maybe we would have suspected at some point. And that's one of the beauties, I think, of the scriptures is that you can read it at, at one level. But then as you really start to experience God, um, I think you can read the scriptures and say, oh, there, there's, there's something here to be experienced as well. You know, as I said, we're not doing a book report, but one of the things in this particular chapter that I I found really helpful is the distinction between our the psychological self, as we might understand that, or, or one's personality, um, and and the the deepest identity of who we are. 
grounded and, and rooted in the love of God. And, uh, uh, you know, we live in uh, a world and, and even oftentimes our Christian communities where we're very obsessed with personality or our, our psychology. And, and there is a place for that. Um, but in contemplation, um, there's something deeper and, and I would even say more real going on than just interacting on the, the personal level. What are on the psychological level? What, what are your thoughts on that? I really liked how he basically said that psychological self, it's, I think the words he uses is just kind of pasted up, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the image I got is of a, you know, a poorly hung uh, poster in a classroom, <laughs> like, uh, that says like believe or trust, you know, or something, some kind of inspirational message. We kind of have those, this is who I am feelings. And, um, but really we don't really re- realize how much it's because we're parroting something that we heard from someone else or because of one experience we maybe had that made us fearful of, of being someone different than we are. Or, so that's that idea of being pasted up. Right. And, um, those things can, can break down. They can, um, they can dissolve, not where we lose our distinctiveness, but in finding our, ourselves, there's kind of a, a destruction of some of those kind of just things that are pasted up rather than nailed to the wall, right? And, and we find a deeper, you know, experience of ourselves. Yeah, and I, you know, I think when I notice my false self uh, emerging, um, I would say, um, because one of the things I wrestled with in this chapter was him always returning back to silence. And I'd have to say, uh, when it comes to what would seem to be a gen- my genuine self or you know who I am in Christ, that often is um, silence. Meaning, you know, usually when I'm doing my prayer of examine and when I'm speaking, um, it's like you're saying, it's like a parity that goes on with that. Whereas when I uh, step, you know, step away, um, then I, I find that there's not a whole lot of conversation happening <laughs> in the, the deepest part of, you know, of, of who I am, you know. Um, there's love um, underneath that, but, and there's even, there's even something underneath are changing emotional states, right? And and once you learn to not identify with your feelings, you know, and you see them just sort of like leaves on a stream, you know, floating by, it is an interesting thing because, you know, it's awfully quiet, you know, and you're like, what's left? But it's not empty, mm. you know? <laughs> There's... Um, which I guess in my life just invites more silence. Yeah, I, I, the image that he gives in this chapter that to me is like worth the price of the book mm-hmm. is uh, that you're the mountain, not the weather. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that often we're identifying with who we are with the weather, what's swirling around. Um, whether it's even our our psychological self or the events around us, um, psychological self being our emotions, even our thoughts, we can think that we are our thoughts, but we're not. Um, we are the mountain. We are that stable place, and I think he refers to 
the Psalms uh, and Mount Zion in that section of the chapter. And that, that's been a really helpful image for me over the last few years just to think, I am not the weather, I'm the mountain. Mm-hmm. And I am secure and rooted in this love. And uh, it is deeper than, than words, you know. Ephesians 3, there's this love that surpasses knowledge, you know. Mm-hmm. There's a peace that surpasses understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that those seem to be the kind of things that um, he's helping us um, parse out and think through. Mm-hmm. You can even notice it in other people, too, when when they've been with the Lord in silence and have really gone kind of to the depths of themselves. You know, occasionally I meet a saint who is just, you know, the perfect picture of love and, you know, patience or whatever. And they'll, they'll talk in a small group or something. They'll say like, I just really struggle with impatience. You know, you're like, I do not see that at all. Like all I see is the saint who's so patient, right? Like, and it's not as though, you know, silence is the change program or whatever that then roots out all this stuff. But I do think that so much of the way that we present to others and what we struggle with ourselves is kind of part of that false self. And then in the depths of silence, God can really alter some of those things so that even when we come out of the silent land, we are we are more silent type people, you know. We're in that land more than we're not, you know. Um, and I think you can notice it, you know. Yeah, I think there is an, there's an interesting flip that happens where, you know, when you're rooted in in your psychological self, you know, there is this instability and this noise, this constant noise, the cocktail party he loves to mention, you know. Um, Whereas I still, you know, (laughs) have a lot of emotions swirling around constantly and, and, uh, you know, being an academic, uh, a lot of thoughts. Um, But, you know, it's like, the flip, though, is now instead of always returning to the chaos, it's like it, 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 you're always returning to the silent land. Like that, like that becomes the new mm. ground, right? You know, and so I don't condemn myself when I, you know, get overwhelmed emotionally or if I'm getting distracted with my thoughts or whatever. But but when I come into that awareness, okay, I'm distracted, or okay, I, I'm I'm insecure right now, and I'm you know, um, expressing myself in a dr- overly dramatic way or whatever that is. But, but it's that, it's that, it's the joy of always returning, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and even a sense that that becomes the default. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think, well, I, where this is referenced, I don't know at this point, but I've, I've been thinking about it for years, but one of the early church fathers or a monk or someone along the way, talked about what happens in the monk's prayer cell, the contemplation, um, the, the time with God. The goal is that you take your prayer cell with you as you go out into the world. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about a practice of contemplation in a regular way, that returning to silence, John, that you're talking about, is that we end up taking the silence with us into the chaos into the world and and you know contemplation is not just simply to be some solitary thing that we just you know what's the criticism it's nasal 
nasal gazing. Navel gazing. Navel gazing. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say it. I like nasal gazing. That it's brings a, a good image a, to me. Yeah. <laughs> Make it's, me cross It's a tongue twister. <laughs> Navel gazing. It's not just that. It, it is that quiet, silent space. Yeah. And it will, and it has the opportunity to transform the way that then you are in the world. Yeah, I just wanted to add to that and say that I hope that when people hear this or would read this book, they would recognize the gift that's been given, not the the burden that's being placed on them. You mm-hmm. know, because the way that he describes this homeland, this return, this place where we can be is like the greatest news, right, that you could receive. It's that there is a place where your true self is known, where you loved, where you can retreat anytime, right, and and have a, a you know, a life with God that, that is and already, and that you, you don't have to do something, change something, you know, you don't have to climb a mountain or whatever to, to recognize it. It's just turn towards it turn towards the silence, turn towards the land, enter the land, you know? And um, it's just such an opportunity rather than a, a new thing to add, right? It's like, this will make everything else way better. Yeah, I mean, and, and even just a, a dying daily, as Jesus says in Luke, you know? So he, it was interesting how he related death and, and this lack of separation, taking something that this, you know, this fear of death which is such a massive motivator in life, um, creating so much anxiety where he, you know, modulates it into this, no, you you just have an opportunity. He equates death to surrender, you know, but like at any moment you can just die. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. yeah, the old self is, is passing away. And it's like at any moment you you can actualize it. Okay. I'm, I'm going to die in this moment. And I'm not afraid that I'm, I'm not. I'm not afraid that there's nothing underneath it, right? Because I know God, and I know that I'm in God, um, and that God is with me, and, and God is life, and and so I can let things go. And I, I think it's important to say on a, just a very practical level as we start this discussion and these series of reflections on this book, and even invite people to come and be a part of our monthly prayer gathering be still is that you can't do this wrong right you can't do contemplation wrong Um, i think we said that a little bit in the first episode that it's really about showing up and just making yourself available for what is happening and and you grow in it and and you learn but it's it's really it'd be like saying i'm gonna go home and spend time with my parents you know go back to the old house that i lived in growing up I, oh gosh, I, I got to make sure I do it the right way. No, you just you walk in the door and you go open the refrigerator and drink right out of the orange juice thing, and then your mom yells at you. No, I, uh, but it's but really, you can't experience there. Yeah, it's happened many yeah. times. But you can't do it wrong. Right. You, you show up, and there's we're going to be talking about some things yeah. that can help you. You can do it better, but you can't do it wrong. You can deepen yeah. some skills and some things to help you be present and attentive to what is. But you just walk in the door. You can't do it wrong. Yeah, I mean, historically, contemplatio uh, was an entirely passive moment in one's encounter with God. You know, and there were active things. Centering prayer, and he'll get into that later, you know, is a technique. 
um, that makes space for it. But I mean, I just agree, Ted. It, I mean, I totally agree with what you're saying. Is really what contemplation is is it, it's almost a weird word because it's active, but it actually isn't. You know, it's it's simply the awareness of what God is doing. Or just being even, not even necessarily doing, <laughs> just the awareness of being, you know, is, is really what it is. And so it's, it's the absence of any activity. Oh, yeah, you know, in, in spiritual direction, I've often heard people say a question that a spiritual director might ask is, where is God in this situation? And I really don't like that question. Because it almost could lead you to think, well, maybe he's in it, maybe he's not. And the question I like a whole lot more is, how is God in this? Yeah. How is he with you? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the default, the ground, the foundation is that he is present and he is loving you constantly, infinitely, perfectly. And, and so our invitation is to awareness. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, right? Top of the mountains or the bottom of the sea, you know. Yeah. There's no escaping God, but in the best way, right? That's not an ominous thing to say there's no escaping. It's like his life-giving presence is everywhere. Yeah, I always think Psalm 139 is what you're quoting. And I think uh, Psalm 139, depending on where you happen to be, could be like... uh, the best news you've ever heard, or it could be a little terrifying. That's right. You know, so yeah. it's it's like good news, bad news, but um, but I think we're inviting people to enter into the good news of that. That's right. Maybe I could transition us towards talking about some of our cautions or correctives to his approach here, um, and you know, we are. Um, I so enjoy this book. One question that I had when kind of entering back into it again, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, guys, is where this fits in the life of discipleship um, for for an individual. And there can be a criticism even of our whole movement, I guess you could say, that this is kind of for the mature, for the supreme, you know, um, Christian, the Christian who's gotten kind of fed up with everything else, and now they enter into a contemplative life or a, a spiritual, spiritually formed life. Um, and I think that anecdotally is often true, right? That that people kind of reach the end of themselves. How much do you guys think that the person who's not, you know, even identifying as a Christian necessarily, or and or the young child, or um, you know, the the newer convert or something like that? How do they begin to enter into the silence of God? Is this something from the very beginning? Does, is this kind of an advanced thing? Um, or where do you see that kind of falling? Not so much a critique of Laird as, as just like a it provokes a question in me. Yeah, yeah, I, I came into this uh, with that suspicion. Um, and I hadn't been raised in contemplation, so it didn't fit in my file of what discipleship was. But um, I found it to be a very helpful pastoral um, practice. You know, I, uh, our children, you know, we, we'll have like 50 or 60 of our kids uh, all in one room, and uh, we actually do contemplation with them. You mean at church, right? At you don't church. have 50 or 60 <laughs> I don't have kids. 50 or 60 <laughs> okay, kids. just want to make it clear. Yeah, you know. at church, you know, and uh, 
so we actually put contemplation in our liturgy, in our children's liturgy. And it, it's fascinating because, you know, you, it'll be chaotic and noisy. These little kids are all running around. And, and then uh, we'll invite them to sit in, um, in silence before Jesus. And we just, and, and we do, um, you know, Laird will talk about the sacred word. We, we let them visualize Jesus smiling at them, which he is. But um, it, it, we, can, we taught it to little children. And we started at like, you know, doing it for like three minutes. But then the kids started to ask to go longer and longer and longer. And, and, and I think at one point they got up to like 12 minutes. Wow. Like Sunday school, you know, and, and every Thursday morning I, I meet with um, brothers and sisters, um, all different ages at my church, and we do contemplation, we do centering prayer, and then and we actually do centering prayer, and then it moves into a time of contemplatio, con- contemplation, and, and then in a circle, we're in a circle, and we invite everyone to share and hmm. what they notice the Lord doing. Or, in them and and I've just found that um, so many people in my church struggle with anxiety disorders mm-hmm. and their nervous systems are out of whack and uh, um, and and this has been a, a wonderful blessing and it has um, drawn them closer to the Lord um, it and and so yeah I I, I can't now imagine not using it in my everyday pastoral work. Mm. Yeah, I ask it somewhat tongue in cheek. I mean, wanting to that to be the answer as well. It, it's just kind of a question sometimes on my mind. This is seems so like mystical writing is, is hard for some people, I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I think about a person that's not necessarily educated, maybe that was sixth grade education or something like that, and they come and read about a cloud of unknowing, and you know, and uh, I no, I'm not saying that we dumb things down or that people are remarkably you know gifted at understanding things, but I don't know, it's just creating those types of things. What you're talking about, where this just we're just kind of the kids be silent, you know, and and visualize God's care for them, or those types of things, I think are helpful ways pragmatically for the church to to do some of those things at every stage, rather than just inviting people into a secret club of, of knowledge or something like that. It's not esoteric. I mean, that's what's so beautiful about it. It is remarkably simple. Yeah. And I think sometimes pastors and ministry leaders get nervous about that, mm-hmm. you know, because they have to have content. They have to have content. And, and yet, you know, anyone can understand, you know, what distraction is and what resistance right. is. <laughs> And you know, you don't have to teach them that. They that's right, right? They just notice it, right? And then, and then there's just the invitation of where they can go with that. There's a deep simplicity to this that the youngest child can understand. And one of the barriers we have, I think, in Western culture, is that um, we've tended toward uh, information and noise and and all that more of a uh, more of a cataphatic is, is kind of the theological term mm-hmm. where it's, it's about input. It's about stimu- stimulus and all that. And, and, mm-hmm. and what we're talking about is more of this apophatic. Uh, cataphatic is like a, according to the light or with the light. Apophatic is away from. It's more of that dark silence. Mm-hmm. And we need both. 
We need both of those things. And, and if anything, a corrective is that we need to tilt a little more towards apophatic sometimes because we're so comfortable just culturally. And I think that's infiltrated the way that we uh, think about God and even relate to one another in the church is it is that more cataphatic, noisy, talking kind of a thing. And, and there is that space that other cultures, you know, are very familiar with. Yeah. And it doesn't seem foreign. And in our context, it's the way we become kind of an alternative community, right? Where there is noise everywhere, but not here, right? Or there isn't the need for noise, at least all the time. What about you guys? Did you guys have any interactions, you know, critical interactions or <laughs> questions that left you guys with in the, in the book? Well, you know, um, there's been a lot of fruitful conversation between uh, Christian uh, monastics like Merton, uh, Laird, of course, uh, and Buddhism. And, and, and so, uh, I, you know, I know the author uh, has meditated with Buddhist monks and has had a lot of dialogue, and that's an ancient tradition with a lot of wisdom in it. Um, but there are differences, you know, and I will say, I, you know, Laird, uh, I think, rooted his teaching in Scripture really well, and obviously in the Catholic um, Tradition, John of the Cross and Eckhart and all that. So, um, but uh, you know, I think the the one the one area that I would love to just learn more from him about, and I just have questions about, you know, is is when he talks about, uh, and we actually had mentioned it earlier, but the psychological self, our personality is a cognitive construct, to quote quote a cognitive construct pasted up out of thoughts and feelings. And I've done a little work on personality. And I, you know, I, I definitely see the truth in that. But I do wonder, though, because in Buddhism, at the base is nothing, mm. you know. And, and I, I wonder if personality is not more deeply rooted than that language could suggest. Um, and so that's, that's, that's a question, you know, I have. And I'll, I'll that we really do have a true self, in other words. Yeah. We do have a true self that maybe is projected or false at times, but that there is some substance to who we are. Maybe yeah. a little more substance than, um, I mean, I know, I know in dialogue with my Buddhist friends, definitely more substance. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, so that would just be a lingering question, but I'm excited to kind of reread the entire book and, and, and see where he goes with that. So. Well, this has been a great discussion, um, and uh, um, I think our, our prayer for this whole season is that um, we would be reflecting on this book and then practicing, just, just showing up and uh, spending time with God in centering prayer. If this is completely new to you, again, an invite to come to our uh, monthly Be Still Gathering. You can find all the information about that on sfsaz.org. The, the one we've been doing for four years now at Canaan in the Desert on 40th Street in North Phoenix. And then we're starting one in the East Valley in Gilbert. And we'll have more information about that on their website as well. may even have some Peugeot coffee there sometime. Ooh, maybe. <laughs> Since we're maybe. representing the East Valley today. <laughs> Yeah, we should also mention there they could join the email list, uh, and that would be a great way to be notified about specific events as well. 
But thank you so much, friends, for spending time with us. I hope that it's fruitful for you as you go into the silent land. Maybe find a day this week, maybe every day, uh, to, to be in the silent land. It's not something that you have to do well, as we've already said, right? You can just enter in anytime. Thanks, John, for joining us. Thanks, everybody. Right on.